Hope you're enjoying all of our podcast episodes so far. If you want to connect with the thousands of other listeners, then join our private Facebook group. Just search for Millionaire Interviews Podcast, and I'll be the first one that shows up. Thanks again for listening. doing this company. I wanted to quit every single year. You will find a solution and you will survive. It's hard right now. How do we solve this and get through it? Great. So I'm the CEO and founder of Crowdbotics. Crowdbotics is a Development on demand startup. We provide software developers directly in Slack for a ridiculously competitive price with extremely good accuracy and quality. Mm-hmm. Run this company for about six months. We're entirely bootstrapped, already profitable, and growing pretty darn fast, over 100%, almost month on month. Before this, ran a company called Lead Genius for about six years, raised about 20 million in venture capital, went through Y Combinator and a few other places. And I and angel invest in advice startups from time to time too. And where are you out of today? So I am living in Berkeley, California. And I've lived here on and off intermittently for the last 15 years now. So funny, you know, I got into this business almost by accident. My story started in graduate school when I was uh, doing a PhD at UC Berkeley. But I always knew I wanted to start a company. So maybe it's not such an unusual, unusual path to take. Started grad school, was interested in becoming a professor at that point done a whole bunch of work in hard math. Several years into my PhD, this new thing called Amazon Mechanical Turk was starting to get a lot of traction and credibility. Amazon Mechanical Turk was a crowdsourcing site. Became really interested in the idea of using it to plug human intelligence into software algorithms, which is something that people had just started trying to talk about. But Mechanical Turk wasn't very good at it. So we ended up building a business that we thought would compete with Amazon Mechanical Turk. Started this with three classmates from graduate class I was in. We decided to try and spin up a service that would compete with Mechanical Turk and would actually use people who were living at the bottom of the pyramid in slums and villages to do the actual work. We would give them work on their phones and we would pull the tasks from Amazon Mechanical Turk or other services that we thought might be good places to find work. So that was the original idea for this business. Can you give us an example of like what someone would do at Mechanical Turk that wasn't good enough and how you kind of made it better? Just if people haven't heard of Mechanical Turk. Yeah. So Mechanical Turk was the service still, still around, of course, pretty popular nowadays, run by Amazon that lets you outsource really, really small tasks that you have a lot of things like, let's say you've got a photograph and you want to tag this photograph so that it can be searched by a search engine and you want to put a bunch of labels on it. Well, that's the kind of thing that you might pay a fraction of a cent to have done hundreds of times. And that's the kind of thing that people would put on Mechanical Turk. So those are the kind of jobs that we thought we would be doing. We tried doing this. It didn't work. There wasn't much work like that out there, it turned out. Amazon Mechanical Turk back in 2011 was a lot smaller than we thought it was. There wasn't that much business on there, so it didn't actually work that well. All the workforce we had loved the opportunity to work on their mobile phones. and We went out and recruited a bunch of folks in a slum in, in Mumbai, India, and another group in a village outside of Delhi. So that side of the business worked out pretty well. Mm-hmm. And then so what you're saying, I don't know if you want to kind of fast forward to where have you officially left that company and now you're with Crowdbotics and kind of how'd that go? 
Yeah, so that first company we started, you know, there were ups and downs in the beginning, but eventually we did find a model that worked. We eventually pivoted that into a business called Lead Genius. So what Lead Genius was, still running today, basically scoured the entire web for information about businesses that were out there, new businesses, existing businesses, and all the people who worked there. We crawled public databases, we called private databases, we ingested government records, and then we used that same human workforce, men and women living in slums and villages all over the world, to clean up that data and sell that information on a subscription basis to sales and marketing teams who needed work, who needed to have high quality, high caliber information. And um, of course, that market was successful. Companies do need leads and they need it on an almost ongoing basis. We built a lot of software on top of that workforce to make the process work really well. And it actually it worked pretty well. You know, we company scaled up pretty fast to about uh, 750 people working there now today with another 20 million in venture funding. And we sold to high performance, high value sales teams and marketing teams as well. So before you jump there, so like what is your example? I don't know if you can say some type of client or something that we'd recognize a company that we'd recognize who would use you and kind of have a really quick example. Yeah, sure. So let's say you're a major tech company that makes their business through um, ads. And there's any number of major tech companies that have advertising teams. Those ad sales teams are always trying to find customers who are new, who are trying to get into this market for the first time. So they might come to us and say, hey, can you find us every director of marketing inside an IT company in Brazil? And now that's a very specific request. And that's a lot of information that's out there to find. You might be able to find it in a database like LinkedIn or, you know, maybe in a paid database of businesses. But in reality, most of the business information you want is going to be scattered across lots of different marketplaces. So lots, me, lots of different databases. So there's no single marketplace you can go to buy that information. So those companies would buy our product, Lead Genius. Lead Genius would let you search all those sources at once by using that human workforce plus a whole bunch of software crawlers to go and get that information. And then we would stitch together behind the scenes, verify that it was accurate, and then sell that to the actual sales and marketing team. So then they would use that to actually reach out to that customer. So they would have a list of every director of marketing. They would send out customized emails to each one of those folks and use the information that we'd collected to do very personalized and super tailored marketing. So if you wanted to say something like, hey, Joe, I saw that you went to the same school that my sales guy did. What a coincidence. You know, let's talk about your marketing needs. You could do that using the data that we provided. So those companies that you do that for, let's just say it was one of those advertising companies. And do you all get an idea of pricing and then go back to them? Is it like a one-time transaction? Or are they using you monthly and general cost for a company like that? We charge on a subscription basis and companies would sign up for six months or a year to get our software platform that lets them analyze their data, but also to get a certain number of leads every month. And our customers paid us somewhere between $2,000 and $100,000 each month, depending on the size of the customer. And we were pretty comfortably serving everybody. I guess the way that y'all were able to make that money was really finding the cheaper labor. Is that the idea that kind of made it work? Because without that, would it not work profitably? Uh, yes and no. So right. the reason we wanted to find people who were low-cost labor wasn't actually because you needed low-cost labor. It was because we wanted to create jobs at large scale as a social impact mission of a company. It wasn't just that workforce, though, that made the difference. It was the fact that we were crawling big parts of the web and downloading and scraping a whole lot of information from a lot of places. The human workforce was the secret weapon that let us give really high-quality, high-accuracy data. There were other companies out there that had tried to just crawl data from a lot of different websites and put it together and sell that information, but the information was never accurate. And there's a lot of information that you can only get with a human being. 
And so that information was our specialty. You wanted to find information that was hard to get, that you wanted data that was highly accurate. Lead Genius could steal the right solution, the best solution for that. And it wasn't about the low cost of the workforce, right? Because we paid fair market wages everywhere. So we certainly were not the cheap solution. And in fact, Lead Genius is still the premium solution for lead generation on the market. That human workforce, we hired from slums and villages specifically because we were kind of Berkeley do-gooders, right? We really wanted to try and attack poverty and figure out a job that was reproducible at scale. So a very different way of thinking than, I think, traditional outsourcing models. Because there have been outsourcing companies that have tried lead gen for a long time, and none of them ever work. Was it particular industries that you would attack at Lead Genius, or is it really just depend on the clients coming in there? I didn't know if there's a certain niche that helped you all. Yeah, so in the beginning, we ended up selling to a lot of tech clients, mostly because we were in the tech industry. But over time, we expanded out to a few big verticals that ended up becoming more and more successful and popular for us. So we did a lot of business to SMB sales, B to SMB. So we especially liked selling to teams that were selling into business services. So think consulting, accounting, things like that. We also did a fair amount of ad teams, people who were trying to sell advertising and other marketing tech products or marketing products. Some real estate residential stuff, because that's a business where leads are extremely valuable and constantly changing. And then a fair amount of things that are a little bit unexpected. Construction actually was a, a decent vertical for us, believe it or not. People who are selling either to construction firms or selling uh, to building sites or new building products because there's a lot of stuff that you need to buy in, in that space and um, it's hard to get that information. From there, being with Lead Genius and more crowdbotics, I mean, like I said, have you formally left and how's that transition worked and what's a, exactly the difference? Yeah, so, you know, I started a brand new company you know, about six months ago. Obviously, starting a new company is always an exciting new adventure because you get to make all the decisions again from the ground up in a way that you take what was good from your last experience and change what was bad about the last experience. So, you know, in the beginning, there was a little bit of preparation and planning. And then the company is still fairly quiet about what we do, but it's not a secret. Today's episode is brought to you by Shinesty, makers of the world's funniest and most comfortable underwear for men. If you're like me, you know underwear sucks. The riding up, the bunching, the adjusting. It's something men have been dealing with since the caveman days. Luckily, I've found a solution. It's Shinesty's underwear. It's designed with a hammock that holds your boys in place throughout the day. As an added bonus, their underwear is made of the softest fabrics on the planet. So try out a pair of Shinesty underwear today and receive 20% off using the code Millionaire Interviews. Now, back to the show. Oh yeah, one more thing. If you want to find out a little bit more about Shinesty and how they got started, then check out episode 52, where I interviewed one of the founders. Crowdbotics is built to provide high caliber and cost controlled, really good software development, more or less on demand. So you can think of it as almost like an Uber service for developers. When you want to build a software product, whether that's just a one-man shop activity or something where you need a team of designers, developers, product managers, all to step in and build something out, you engage Crowdbotic, hit go, and you're up and running. So right now we're serving customers who are, some of them are big tech teams who have an existing engineering workforce in-house who's really expensive and they just want to try and make that team go a little faster. So they add in 
one or two people from Crowdbotic who kind of speed things up along the way. But then you've also got customers who are solo entrepreneurs or business people with an idea who engage Crowdbotics and basically treat us as almost a CTO as a service where we scale up their prototype, get them up to the MVP, their first customers, where they're up and running and have their first version of their technology product and technology stack. The key difference, though, is that everything is virtual and we use a little bit of machine learning and a lot of software to try and put big guardrails up around every activity to make sure that things go smoothly every time. And because we're installed on enough customers and we've seen enough software projects move to the system right now, we have a fairly good idea of how to make sure that most software development projects come in very efficiently and end up with successful outcomes. And so, again, kind of with the transition, why did you leave Lead Genius? Was it personal reasons or is it, are you just getting bored or can you tell us about that transition? Yeah, you know, the company was in a, a great place and, you know, we'd built it up to a fairly strong position. My co-founders took over the company and we'd had management in place at every level we thought was pretty good. So I felt like it was the company was in good hands. There was some initial work that I wanted to do about on an academic basis because um, I'm, I'm fairly active as a researcher in the scientific crowdsourcing community. And then, you know, after that was done, I felt like it was a good time to get my feet wet again in the entrepreneurial space. Okay. And so I guess throughout this time, what are some of the, the biggest hurdles that you've had to deal with between these two companies, I guess, so far? Gosh, you know, everything that I've been up at the highs and the lows of the business, they always say it's a, it's a roller coaster. You know, we've seen a few situations, companies, both companies that have been interesting. I'll talk about one from the early days at Lead Genius. You know, before we had product market fit and we were still trying to figure things out around the competitor to Amazon, we came really close to running out of cash where we were two or three months out from running out of our entire savings for the business, right? All of our investment capital. And, you know, we talked to our investors at Y Combinator and said, hey, uh, we're going to go out and try and raise more money. And Paul Graham told us, you know, you guys really haven't done enough to justify that you know, you're know you going to be able to raise any more cash. And I think that's a pretty common situation. Most of the time, people try and go out and raise money. It's not when they really want to raise money. It's not when things are easy. It's when things are really hard and, you know, when you're low on your cash reserve. So we said, okay, what, what do we do? Because at this point, we didn't really have many customers or any customers, really, because we were still trying to compete with Amazon. We didn't have much to show for what we had done with the business so far. So we said, yeah, you could go out and try and make some money. So we did that and we launched a really, really simple service where people could just subscribe to get on-demand helpers for virtual work. And that business took off, you know, that uh, people started using that almost immediately. People paid us for it every month. And um, eventually we realized the killer use case for that was lead generation. You know, then it became easy for us, right? Once we had uh, customers who were paying us uh, for lead generation services, we could scale that thing up. And we did. We raised some more money and went after that. So that was an interesting tricky situation that we got into and uh, we managed to survive that one, which is why Lead Genius ended up taking off and becoming successful. So basically it was when you were hiring those people overseas. I mean, what do you have advice for people who are doing that type of overseas virtual assistance work and how to make those teams work? Because it seems most of the time, it depends on the individual, but sometimes you have some bad experiences if you're on Upwork or Odesk and how to make that actually work positively for you. Well, you know, we're in an interesting place because we're in a business where we act as a vendor that takes that burden off of people. So I will say that if you don't want to DIY it or you want to maximize the chance of success, you know, go with a solution as opposed to trying to hire somebody yourself because um, your costs are going to be ultimately lower if you end up going with someone like us or, you know, even like Lead Genius that's done the heavy lifting in terms of vetting people and identifying what works and what doesn't. You know, if people do want to do it themselves, it's still possible to do it. Be prepared to invest a lot of time in interviewing, screening, recruiting, and expect a lot of money spent on 
yeah, some training. So to give you an example, you know, the one of the ways that we do this to try and minimize costs is for any given position, we'll hire multiple people um, at the same time. We'll pay them all and we'll vet them side by side on active projects. So that's a cost that we bear as part of our value add to customers. But if you do it yourself, that's also a recommended practice. Don't just hire one person, hire multiple people so that you can make sure that you can get the best of three or best of five, which increases the chance that somebody's going to work out well. And if you're doing that, I mean, are you going to connect with those virtual assistants or I guess at Lean Genius or where you're at now with Crowdbotics? I mean, are you going to those vendors to try to find the right people and hiring a few of them? Or are y'all sending someone, for example, to India to actually try to find these virtual workers? How are you as a company able to do that? Yeah. So Crowdbotics, our model is a little bit different. We have relationships with a whole bunch of developer organizations all over the world, including in the U.S as well as the major freelancing services and sites. And we pull from that pretty big workforce into a screening pipeline and a hiring pipeline that we can validate and a set of automated tests that we get to screen. So we're pulling from folks who are not just on freelancing sites, but people who might not even be exposed in that economy, which means we can get better talent for the dollar. Although, of course, there are still great people on uh, freelancing sites as well. And, of course, we have relationships with those groups as, in the same way. Mm-hmm. And so at Crowdbotics, did you also do some crowdfunding or money capital raising in order to get this started? And are you the sole owner? What's that like? And what's the investor? How many investors, et cetera? Yeah, great question. So Lead Genius, we raised, we went the conventional venture capital route. We did Y Combinator, followed by raising from a whole bunch of great investors. For Crowdbotics, I decided to do things a little differently. The company is entirely bootstrapped. And we got to profitability and to pretty good growth without taking outside capital, which is an interesting journey, certainly a different path and a different choice. But right now, I'm the sole owner of the business, which is a nice position to be in. Certainly gives us more optionality and, you know, it opens the doors for downstream possibilities. Can you tell us the differences? Someone doesn't know, like when you're at Legion Just and you had co-founders and working with those type of people versus doing it yourself and having your own capital? Well, sure. So let me talk about both pieces. The first are investors, second are co-founders, right? Maybe we'll start with the second one. So my co-founders at Lead Genius built that business from the ground up from nothing with me. They were phenomenal partners and the business would not exist without all of those, those guys in a very real sense. I think that the pressures of running a business can be extremely high and there's a strong urge to quit and give up that you'll have that co-founders will be able to help you alleviate. And I think there's dozens of times where I would have walked away from that business if I didn't have two great people backing me up saying, hey, we're going to make this work. And it's important, useful to have that in a real way. Investors are also fantastic. If it's your first time running a business, I recommend both having co-founders and investors if you can get them. You know, investors come with some strings attached. And I think one thing that early entrepreneurs sometimes forget is that not all investors are the same. So in the very beginning, you may raise money from angel investors or from accelerators like Y Combinator or 500 Startup, all of which we took money from. And then as you get bigger, you can talk to professional venture capitalists who are used to writing larger checks. But of course, when you bring in investors, you get advice, guidance, mentorship, Y Combinator, as well as a couple of the early investors we took, B Partners, Better Ventures. They really taught us how to build a company. They helped us answer a lot of the basic questions that came up from time to time. And they told us what was important to focus on, growth, and told us what was not important to focus on, everything else. You know, that kind of clear guidance is something that you get when you have investors, which you may not have. We didn't have it at the time because we were clueless graduate students. We developed it thanks to their effort. 
then of course we owe them a debt of gratitude for that. Certainly really worthwhile if you want to go that route to uh, take that kind of capital. As far as with that mindset, when you had those investors and they're telling you just focus on growth, is there a way that you help keep focus now if you're the sole owner when you don't have those co-founders? And yeah, it's not like you obviously know everything, but how do you go ahead and make that transition to keep you motivated to keep it going? Yeah, great question. So I try and keep some of the same rigor that I had when I was CEO here at this business. So we keep track of our metrics week on week, even though I'm the only investor in the company. I have a chart showing our weekly performance, and I try to make sure that we hit at least 10% growth every week. We don't. That's a failure. Ideally, we hit 20% or more in a given week because in the early stages, we should be able to just pull in lots of customers and drive, drive performance fairly well. And if we don't hit that number, I ask my key senior folks what we think we should be doing differently. I did actually manage to retain one good habit from the last company, which was writing a weekly and a monthly update email to the stakeholders in the business, which right now are just, you know, my friends and family that tell us, hey, here's where we are, here's where we're going, and here's what I hope to have us achieve, key wins, key losses, things like that. Third thing that I do that I think is overlooked is I work with a business coach, an entrepreneurial coach. Hamilton Chan, who was in Y Combinator with me six years ago, gives great advice, helps keep me uh, on the level. If you don't want to do a coach, you can also look at other entrepreneurs who are starting a business. But it is useful to work with someone and talk with someone who is uh, in the same situation you are. Just so people have an idea if they've never had a business coach, like are you with them once a month, once a week? And what type of things are you talking about that kind of helps you? Yeah, we do once every two weeks. Some people do weekly, some people do monthly, but once every two weeks is the right cadence for us. I basically say, here's what I'm working on this week. Here's what I think is right for the business. And you know, here's where I think we're going to go next. What do you think about these strategies? Or here's a problem I'm trying to solve. What do you think? There are other kinds of meetings that are also useful that are internal that can help guide the company in the same way. We do an all-hands meeting every week, once a week, where we just talk about what our goals were. Did we hit the targets? How are we going to hit the targets next week? We do one-on-ones with all the employees and their managers. You know, I do one-on-ones with my key reports in the company. Those are good ways to find out what's happening with the business, talk strategy, communicate information. Those are useful things to do too, as soon as you have even one hire in your company. And who was that first hire for you with Crowdbotics? Well, you know, Crowdbotics, we ended up dogfooding a lot of our own product. So we use our own developers to build out products and services. And, you know, I do one-on-ones with, with those developers as well. So those are the first ones we brought on. And I guess kind of what we're talking about, you know, every couple of weeks or whatever, having a business coach, do you have a typical work week or work day, a routine that kind of helps you keep motivated and keep on track? Yeah, absolutely. So my mantra in running businesses is they're built on processes. So you've got to establish consistent processes that you can plug into. Some of those will hopefully be automated, but if not, you can start work on automation for them. So load up my mornings with meetings, both client, existing customers, new customers, or one-on-ones with my employees, which I backlog in uh, one or two days. After that, I have some unstructured time after lunch. You know, usually at lunch, I'll go out and grab a bite, read my mail or, you know, check a meeting, the news or something like that, something to take my mind off work. After that, in the afternoon, I try and leave some unstructured time so I can check in on the product development, answer a bunch of sales emails or sales inquiries, give instruction directly to my team via Slack. And then I try and wrap things up around six o'clock. And I think it's important, although I'm, of course, extremely willing to work at any hours of the day, I think it's extremely important to find and defend a little bit of personal time in your own life. 
for the business to be successful because it's not just about um, sacrificing your own health and sanity for the business. It's about trying to build something that's really sustainable for the long term. This is a lesson that my co-founder, Dave at Lead Genius, really emphasized this idea that startups are a marathon, not a sprint. And he lived that because he had uh, two kids and got married during the course of that company. And something I'm trying to make sure that I defend here, too. So after six o'clock, I'll head home, go to the gym, have dinner and spend a little time. You know, I'll check mail once or twice, but I will aggressively delegate stuff that comes in during that time to either my own assistant or to another member of the team. And when you're doing these structures, is there any type of software or, or any type of hacks that you could that help you keep on track? Yeah, definitely. So the big ones to use here, Google Calendar, count structures your day, right? So you block out any time that you need to work on particular things and defend that. Having an assistant lets you take stuff out of email that is showing up and give it to that assistant so that I might say something like, get this on my calendar for an easy case or, hey, we're going to do a sales call. Jay will send you an invite. And then it's just a CC. The email goes away. Jay handles it. There's also more advanced things like, okay, this needs to be researched. Go research this. Get me back a decision. And that kind of effective delegation takes stuff that doesn't have to be decided by me and gives it to somebody else, which means the business can move faster. The other pieces that are really important are having a CRM for managing your customer relationship. There's lots of cheap or free CRMs, also more advanced ones like Salesforce. There is There are a couple other pieces that you can add as you get more advanced. Marketing stacks like HubSpot or MailChimp, as well as software development management stack. We use our own that we put together ourselves. And then Slack, of course, which is the entirety of what our business is based on. Everything is in Slack. Slack is our preferred number one means of communication, and we use it for organizing a lot of company activities and customer activities. Appreciate you sharing all that. I mean, it's obviously pretty helpful, but is there any other advice or lasting lessons that you should tell the entrepreneurs who are listening and hopefully potential guys who have their businesses going? Yeah, I will say a couple of things. The best advice I can give is stick with it. The difference between a successful startup and an unsuccessful startup or a successful business and one that doesn't make it, in many cases, is just somebody's tenacity and grit and willingness to keep going even when things are unpleasant or really difficult. I remember reading this great piece of advice from Justin Can, who sold Twitch to Amazon for a billion bucks. And somebody asked him an AMA, Justin, you know, did you ever want to quit when you were doing this company? And he said, I wanted to quit every single year, every single year he thought about quitting that business. And he didn't. And as a result, he built and sold a billion dollar company. And I've experienced that same thing. To build a successful company, you've got to just ignore those times or figure out ways to solve those times when you are feeling miserable and want to stop doing it. And go do something else, take a break, take your mind off of it, come back with a fresh set of eyes and say, okay, it's hard right now. How do we solve this and get through it? And once you've made that decision, you will find a solution and you will survive through ups and downs. Well, like I said, now we appreciate the advice. If someone wants to reach out to you, it's the best way to say thank you. Gosh, people can hit me up on Twitter at Polybot or they can email me directly. I actually generally respond to almost all except for automated emails. I'm happy to give advice, happy to set people up with tips or tricks, or of course, if they want developers, we're the ones to talk to. They can just email me directly, Anand, A-N-A-N-D, at crowdbotics.com. We'll have all that contact info in the show notes, and thank you for coming on, and really appreciate the advice you had for us. Hey, my pleasure. Looking forward to seeing all these new companies grow and emerge. All right. Well, thank you, Anand. All right. Take care. All right. You too. 